Hey, how is everyone out there doing? This is Keith Billick welcoming you back for another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I sure hope this podcast finds you feeling healthy and safe and not too stir-crazy or cabin-fevered out or anything like that. Uh, Sure are some strange times we live in, but uh, grab that banjo. It's been helping me out a lot, and I sure do have some good things for you to work on in this episode. So I just really hope, like I said, that you're all taking care of yourselves, taking care of each other, not going too crazy, and pretty soon we will be on the other side of this all getting together again to enjoy some live music, enjoy grocery shopping, just the the small pleasures in life. But uh, speaking of enjoying the live music, of course, this is the second installment of the very ironically timed episodes regarding Jam Session Survival. Last week, we covered a lot of the the overview and the, the etiquette about how to approach a jam, stuff like that. This episode, we're going to dive more into how the music actually works and and what to play. And to that purpose, I have a five-page tablature sheet, just like I promised you. There are three, I guess, three best ways for you to access the tablature sheet. Sometimes the podcast programs that you download this on will include it, but I think most don't, so I'll just assume that you don't have it. Uh, you can go to my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash banjo podcast, and look under the posts there, and there will be a public post in which I have all of the tab sheets uh, from all of my episodes collected, and you'll be able to click on that and download it easy peasy, and that's so that's one way to do it. Another way is to go to the show's media hosting page, which is banjopodcast.libsyn.com. That's banjopodcast.libsyn.com. And if you click on the podcast, there will be big, bold letters that says tab sheet uh, just below the, the player on the screen there, and you can download it. The third way is if neither of those seem to be working for you, uh, just send me an email to pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com and I will be happy to email that to you as quickly as I possibly can. Uh, going back to that Patreon page, though, I, I always like to steer people toward that because this show, the, the only money that this show makes comes from listeners and listeners uh, pledging their support over that Patreon page. So that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast. There are some really cool rewards available, one of which is that you get a personal thanks on the show. And I have two such patrons and supporters of the show to thank uh, for this episode. First up, we have Johnny Packard. And Johnny is not only a banjo player, but he's he's big into fly fishing. He's a big Towns Van Zandt fan and named his cats Poncho and Lefty after that and makes his own hot sauce. So Johnny, I'm I'm actually allergic to fish, so I was never much of a fisherman. I'm kind of more of a dog guy, not not really into cats so much, but hot sauce, that's that's one of my things. So I don't know. If you're if you're producing this in a way that you ship it out, get a hold of me. I, I would love to try some of that and we'll figure out a way to uh, you know, get an exchange going if it's even close to as good as my uh Michigan made raise Polish fire hot sauce. 
uh, I will very much enjoy it. So anyway, Johnny, thank you so much for the support and hope to talk to you about that hot sauce. The other supporter of today's show is Jesse Madden. I don't know a whole lot about Jesse, but I sure am glad and very thankful that he managed to find my Patreon page and apparently enjoys the show enough that it was worth uh, his money to throw some support my way, and I very much appreciate it. So thank you to both of you for, for doing that, and it means a lot to me. If you're unable to support the show on the Patreon page, but you'd still like to help out in some sort of way, uh, the best ways to do that are make sure you subscribe, like, and uh, give the show a rating on Apple, iTunes, or you know whatever your platform is of choice. Those all really help out. You can also just help spread the word on social media. I'm uh, Picky Fingers on Facebook. I am Banjo underscore podcast on Instagram or follow me on Twitter where I am at Banjo podcast. And those are just ways of, like I said, spreading the word to other people who you think may enjoy hearing what I have to say. And I do have a lot to say this episode. It's basically just going to be me talking and a bit of banjo playing too. So I will get on with it. Here is the second installment of the Picky Fingers Jam Survival Guide. I really encourage you guys to to give me your feedback. Let me know which of these things helped you. It's it's hard to do one of these in a in a one size fits all kind of kind of fashion. So I tried to just offer as much useful advice as I possibly could. Uh, I'd really love to hear what you think about it or maybe some things that I missed that I could cover on a future episode. Let me know any of those either through the social media or by email. I always love hearing from you. But here we go. Jam Session Survival Guide Part 2. So congratulations, you are at the jam, your banjo is out, your picks are on, you are prepared to play. So let's dive in here. First, some overarching principles of learning to jam and how to approach jamming to get the most out of the experience. First of all, I'll remind you of something I said last episode, which was the concept that this whole thing is a marathon, not a sprint. You're not going to show up to your first jam and sound like um, Jens Kruger. Most of the best learning experiences that I've had have come as a result of me not knowing something or not being prepared. And really that starts with listening a lot. If you listen to a lot of the kind of music that you want to play, that's going to be your best guide when you are making judgment calls in terms of what you should be doing in the jam. You might hear a sequence of a song where, oh man, I know the banjo would be really great if I was just doing this type of up the neck backup, but I don't really, I've never learned that. I don't know how to play it. That is a lesson for you to take with you so that when you have your own practice time, you'll file that away. Like, ooh, that was a, that was a weak point of my playing that I was not prepared for and use that as an opportunity to prepare for that situation next time. Or maybe you've rehearsed a whole song and you know, front to back, you know, all the lyrics, you have a, a great solo break worked out, you have some good backups, but 
you know the song's about to end, but you never practiced endings, well, that's a good opportunity to go do some studying on on how to end songs on the banjo and maybe what specific endings go with certain specific songs. Use those times where you where you trip up as learning opportunities and be open to that and just try to embrace it rather than being discouraged by it. So that's a, that's a good overall principle. But when it comes down to playing the first rule that I think anybody will tell you is to be in tune. And I mentioned last time about making sure you have a tuner. That's for this reason, not like you didn't know that, but uh, be in tune and tune up before you play. And almost as important as being in tune is being courteous when, when you're tuning. The banjo is notoriously loud in front of it, not even just to the player, but it projects outward to the other players. So if somebody's having a conversation or if they're trying to tune their instrument, it's it's a good practice to maybe step out of the circle, uh, turn your banjo toward the outside of the circle or away from people as you tune. Just try not to be obnoxious and um, hopefully other people do the same to you. And Likewise, if somebody else is tuning in between a song, it's a, it's real hard to tune when there's a lot of noise going on. So try to resist just idly playing your banjo while while someone else is tuning. The quicker everyone can get tuned up, the sooner the actual jamming can start. So be in tune and uh, tune courteously. The second most important rule of jamming, and this might not be very intuitive, is to keep your head up while you're playing and try to maintain a lot of eye contact with the other players that you're with. It's definitely our nature to be looking down at our hands as we're trying to play music, and sometimes you just need to. There's no way around that. But as much as possible, be aware that in in bluegrass jams in particular, there's a lot of information that gets communicated via either head nods or eye contact or just different nonverbal cues and you're going to miss all of those if you're if you're just staring down at your banjo and and not paying attention to what's going on. So here's here's some stuff about how the mechanics of the song work and how some of these nonverbal cues can go into it. Typically when there's a song going to be started, the song that we're going to work from a lot during this episode is on my way back to the old home, which is, you know, a bluegrass standard and a pretty a, a pretty well-known favorite for, for jam sessions. So let's say somebody calls off on my way back to the old home. Next thing that they're going to say is what key it's in. Most songs can be, the the key of it can change, and that will typically depend on who's going to sing it, and they're going to choose a, a key that's comfortable for them. So those are the two things to pay attention to right off the bat is what key you're in so you can position your capo and just kind of prepare yourself for that. A lot of times the person singing the the lead vocals for the song ends up taking on a role that is, I guess, more similar to like a conductor. And what I mean by that is when it's time for instrumental solos, it's typically up to that person singing lead vocals to give a good strong eye contact or head nod or some sort of indication to a specific person 
that it's their turn to take a solo. And that person could be you. So this is a big reason why you want to have your heads up and and pay attention to what's going on. Pretty early in that song, you're going to want to think about, am I going to feel comfortable taking a solo in this song and, and decide really quickly yes or no? And that's because if somebody points to you, you, there's not going to be time in the song for you to sit there and think about what you want to do, and then maybe you say no, and then by that time the solo is halfway over, and now nobody's playing a solo because you didn't do what was expected when somebody pointed you to take a solo. And the way around that is to just, you know, be prepared to shake your head no, so that that lead singer can move on to the next person. Sometimes this is a thing that the musicians confer about even while the person is singing. You might turn to the next person and say, I'm not going to take a break on this song. And that person will then know that if you get pointed to, maybe they can jump in and fill it in so that there's not a gap in the music. Uh, but at any rate, that's that's just another way of, or another reason rather, to pay attention. You don't want to miss those cues when they happen, and you want to be ready, especially if you are going to play a solo. It, it helps to have an extra few seconds to just sort of gather your thoughts real quick for what you want to, for what you want to do. Oftentimes, the orders of the solos actually go in physical order, either from left to right or right to left or around the circle somehow. So a lot of times, it's actually even predictable when you might be the next soloist. So that helps you prepare even a little bit more. Or uh, alternatively, it helps you communicate with the people around you that you'd like to be skipped when when it's your turn if you don't feel prepared. Along those same lines, a general rule is that the solos of a bluegrass song are going to be played over the verse chords for a song like On My Way Back to the Old Home, that doesn't really matter because the verse is the same as the chorus in terms of what chords people play. But for a song like uh, Old Home Place, for example, that has very different chords for each section of the song, many times, especially when you have a lot of soloists, it can get a little monotonous if everyone just keeps going on the uh, verse chords. So that's another reason to have your heads up is some people might be indicating that they're going to switch to the chorus chords unexpectedly uh, for the next soloist. And if that happens to be you, that's really valuable information and important information to, to be able to know. Other things that are often communicated via these nonverbal cues is different arrangement things. I'm thinking specifically of perhaps stops in the music on a song such as Head Over Heels. There's a very distinctive stop that reoccurs in the music. And chances are, if especially if the other people who you're playing with know that you are not familiar with that song, they're going to do their best to stare you down and get, get you ready to be ready to play that stop just like it's supposed to go in the song, even if it's only your first time playing it. So be ready for stuff like that, or even just other arrangement items if people are supposed to 
quiet down or speed up or certain instruments are supposed to drop out. Some some groups like to try to to mess with that stuff. And the more you're paying attention, the more you'll be able to roll with those kind of on-the-fly changes. Bluegrass music also has this strange phenomenon. I don't even know if there's a name for it, but I'll call it like the thing, the thing where you just vamp on a chord and wait for the person to sing. Now, typically, this is going to happen at the end of somebody's solo and before the next verse starts. Typically, when, when you're playing a song, you play the form. When you get to the end of the verse, you start back at the beginning of the verse and you, you play it again. Uh, this will happen when, like I said, usually it's when someone finishes the solo and the singer is going to sing the next verse, but maybe they don't come right in where, where maybe some people would expect them to. And instead, they wait for another measure or two or three or four. And basically, what you need to know is wherever that person comes in with the singing, that's the beginning of the verse. And if you had started the verse where you originally expected to it, you'd be playing wrong chords everywhere because you you got off in the music by several measures. So that's just something to be aware of. And I'm not sure, I have a... I have a theory that it probably started when most bluegrass performances and recordings were done on one microphone, and maybe after someone's solo, the lead singer got caught in the back of the group and needed time to, to walk back up to the front before singing, so they needed to figure out a way to kill just a few extra seconds to let that person get back up to the microphone. It's also a good way to cover for you or, or for the singer if that person has maybe forgotten the lyrics to the next verse, which of course does happen, and it's just a way for them to gather their frame of mind and, and try to figure out what the next lyrics they're going to sing is. And and you just need to be, again, heads up and watching for that and knowing that if the next verse hasn't started, then you shouldn't have started playing it. You you can just vamp and and wait for that to come in. It's a tricky thing, and that that actually trips up even really experienced musicians, especially when they come from different genres of music, like jazz bass players, for example. They're good musicians, and they can pick up the the structure of bluegrass a lot, but whenever that happens, it always seems to trip them up, and they they get confused by it. And I don't know what to say other than warn you that that sometimes happens, and, and watch out for it. Another really important thing to watch out for is the ending of the song. Maybe you know the song, but maybe you don't, or maybe the person singing the song that you know is singing it a slightly different way, or they don't do a verse, or they do an extra verse. But either way, you need to be watching out for signals that the song's about to end, and that can be any number of things. A lot of times, if the singer all of a sudden just gets a... a little more bug-eyed and looks around and holds their their instrument up in the air, that could be a, an indication that the song's about to end. Another very uh, famous clue that the song is ending is people sticking their feet up in the air toward the middle of the circle. That means end it after this next go-round. Now, 
now, just as I did last episode, I'm also going to flip these ideas around. And if you are an experienced jammer and you tend to be a lead singer or somebody who who is kind of more or less in charge of the jamming circle, try to take all this advice and take it on yourself to be a good communicator for the, the newcomers to the jam or even the experienced players. And it, it pays to just reflect on how helpful it is to have good, clear, nonverbal communication between between the players and whose solo it is. And nobody likes to get caught off guard with, with any of this stuff. So the more you can communicate um, before something is actually happening, the better that's all going to go and the more fun everyone's going to have. Once you gain experience with this whole system and this approach, you'll notice even other ways that the the jammers communicate. Sometimes it doesn't even have anything to do with the lead singer. In fact, a lot of times when the lead singer is focusing as they should on singing the song, it's up to the side musicians, which is what I typically find myself doing, to to delegate some of the other responsibilities. And what I mean by that is... In bluegrass, most of the time, if there is a verse being sung, one of the other musicians will be in charge of playing instrumental fills in between the lines, and that takes some communication to make sure that not everybody is trying to do that at once and people are switching up. And as a banjo player, you need to be aware of, A, if if you are supposed to be the one doing the fills, that's one thing, but another thing to consider is maybe if the mandolin player is doing the fills, that's when it's your job to maybe provide more of a uh, chop-style accompaniment to to fill in for those mandolin chops that are now missing because the mandolin player is playing fills. So as I, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff like that, but as I mentioned, that's kind of the more, the, the next level of jamming to even get that jam circle to sound even more professional. Those are Those are actual arrangement tricks that an experienced jammer knows how to negotiate on the fly as long as the whole the whole group is kind of on board with communicating with each other. Another great piece of advice is something that I alluded to last time regarding taking notes about what songs are played. I kind of view this as a fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me kind of situation. So say there's a a song that keeps popping up in the jam sessions that you go to, that should be a, a a screaming red flag to you that you need to do some work on that song that keeps stumping you. Um, nothing, almost nothing was more motivating to me to g- go sit down and learn a song other than the fact that I kept getting embarrassed by the fact that everyone seemed to know this song except for me. And I, that really annoys me to be the one who who isn't up to speed on these things. And especially if you find yourself jamming with some of the same people over and over again, and it becomes a little more predictable regarding what type of songs they're going to play. Don't forget to pay attention to that. And like I said, take notes and try not to be stumped any more often than is absolutely necessary. This stuff is hard enough as it is. You might as well try to give yourself an advantage in these situations. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Deering Banjos, who want you to know that banjo teachers love good times. In a recent survey conducted by Deering, over 200 banjo teachers were asked 
how likely is it that you would recommend the good time banjo to your students? An overwhelming 85% responded that they would, with the number one reason being that good times are easy to play. Even Good Time Ambassador and 2019 IBMA Banjo Player of the Year Kristen Scott Benson agrees that you will not find a better banjo than this in the price range of the Deering Good Time. With the Good Time banjos, Deering understands the importance of starting out with a banjo that will help not hinder your banjo learning experience, which is why they make sure that each and every Good Time banjo leaves looking great, feeling great, and sounding great. For more information and to see exclusive videos from Good Time Ambassadors Kristen Scott Benson and Pete Wernick, head over to DeeringBanjos.com slash Teachers Love Good Times. For the second half of this episode, as we dive into some things to actually play on the banjo, one of the suggestions from the Facebook group was they wanted me to cover how to fake it till you make it. I thought that was a really interesting uh, but also useful thing to ask about. And what I take that to mean is, essentially, how do I play songs that I don't know? How do I get up to speed on songs that I've never heard? And really, the answer to that is, I want to teach you how to fake it until other people think you've made it. And the reason I say that is because you're no matter how experienced you get, you're never going to know every song. You're always going to be in a situation where people are playing things you don't know, or maybe they have original songs, which of course you're not going to know those before you've heard them. And you're going to have to know some basic concepts of improvising, because that's really what improvising is. It's knowing how to play something that sounds good without having it pre-planned out. So how to fake it till you make it really means getting the most mileage out of the skills that you do have. And that really uh, takes us to beginning improvisation and lick-based playing. And we're going to get into both of those things right now. I don't think it's ever too early in your banjo learning journey to begin trying to improvise, but for for purposes of this podcast, I think to be, to be ready to do some of this stuff, you definitely want to be pretty comfortable with all of your right-hand rolls. Ideally, you should know all of your chord shapes up and down the neck, at least in terms of G, C, and D chords. And that was the first improvising I did was, again, trying to make the most out of what I knew. So if all you know, let's say a few shapes of the G chord, then maybe if the band is playing a G chord, your improvising is just going to sound like this. And that was basically just me holding down different G chord shapes and doing basically like a forward reverse roll, but maybe with a few little extra added things. And that wasn't really a brilliant 
uh, piece of music that I just played, but it will fit musically in with some basic bluegrass rhythm. And definitely as you start to mess around, sometimes improvising is just messing around and trying to find what sounds good. And as you mess around with these different chord shapes and roll combinations, and once you then take the next step of playing through a chord progression, maybe it takes on a little more life. So if if we're just playing G to C to D and back to G, it can sound a little bit like this. And yeah, I, I'm screwing up at the end, but you get the idea. We're just working with basic right hand patterns, basic left hand patterns, mix and match. And that's the first element of improvising is taking what you know, trying to apply it to as many different situations as you can. And as we go forward, this is going to bring us to lick based playing. You could view a particular chord shape played with a certain role as a lick. And if it's the G chord, you could play that G chord or this odd G chord lick anytime the band's playing a G chord, and that will work. And if any of you are unfamiliar with what I mean when I say a lick, I view lick-based playing kind of like doing a Mad Lib. And we all, we all know Mad Libs, the fun word games where you, you fill out words based on whether they're nouns or verbs or adjectives or whatever. Uh, Lick-based playing is very similar to that, whereas in a Mad Lib, you're called to choose a noun. Basically, any noun, as as long as you know you're prompted for a noun, almost any noun that you can think of is going to work and make some sort of different sentence based on the word that you choose. And depending on what other words you choose, the words around it, the sentence structure around it, those sentences are going to potentially mean very different things. Lick-based playing is the same way. What I want all of you to do is, rather than just learning songs, you should still keep learning songs and tunes just, just like you're doing, but have an extra layer of awareness that when you're learning a song, let's say like uh, Cripple Creek, and you're going... You're learning part of the Cripple Creek song, but that line right here is played over the, the songs in the key of A, but it's essentially a, a G lick out of the G shape, you know, because you play it with a capo. I want you to look at every line that you play in any song that you're learning as a potential, in that case, G lick. So that could be a G lick. And just like any random noun, let's say like can or pencil or shoe, just like all of these nouns that you already know are suitable candidates for putting into a Mad Lib when a noun is called for, any G lick that you know, such as is a suitable candidate for any situation that a G lick is called for. And what situations are those? Well, for the most part, if the band is playing a G chord 
or a C chord or a D chord or whatever, then chances are you're going to want to play one of your G licks. So as you're learning these songs, really what you are also kind of doing is amassing a collection of G licks or C licks or D licks or A licks or F licks, whatever. All these little bits of tunes and songs that you're learning are of potential use even for songs different than the specific one that you're learning. And I hope that all makes sense. And the concept of improvising with these licks comes into play where, let's say you have two measures of G and two measures of C. You can improvise by, if you know that you have to play two measures of G, you think about all those G licks that you know and pick one. And then you have to think of a C lick that you know, and you pick one of those too. And that's where the Mad Lib concept kind of comes in, because depending on which of those licks you choose, they're going to fit together in different ways. And pretty soon, if you know enough licks, the possibilities and the combinations of things that you could play are almost endless. But they are all they all come from this repository that you've that you've gathered over all the time that you're learning how to play. So not only should you think about the things that you're learning as potential licks, but be on the extra lookout for little sections of songs that you think sound really cool when you play it. Those are the really the ones to pay attention to. Like, ooh, I like that, how that sounds when I play it. And I think that's something I'm really going to make sure that I store away in the memory banks for, uh, you know, being able to pull out in the jam session. But now we're going to use a real life song and I'll uh, demonstrate how, how this whole concept works. And as I mentioned before, the vehicle that we're going to use for learning how to improvise and for lick-based playing is on my way back to the old home. So now is when you want to pull out that tablature sheet that you downloaded with this episode and start following along. I know that that song recording is not in the key of G. However, um, I'm gonna I have it tabbed out, and the demonstrations that you'll hear me do are in the key of G. But obviously, you just transfer all of the same fingerings up to whatever key you need uh, with a capo and it will all work out the exact same way. So we're going to learn this song. Uh, I have tabbed out for you. The first thing I have tabbed out for you is a basic, it would work either as a kickoff or a down the neck break as a melody line. That should really be the first, the first goal is, is to figure out the melody of a song when you're learning it. So I'm, I'm giving this to you. And that will be the basis by which we do some lick substitution. But here is the, the basic kickoff or down the neck melody break to On My Way Back to the Old Home. Old home. <laughs> And 
And here it is again, a bit slower, in case you want to follow along on the tablature with this. Okay, then let's say you're learning the tune and you do what I think is a fantastic idea as the first way to expound upon your ideas that are available for this, and that is to learn an up-the-neck melody. So the next thing I have tabbed out there is an up-the-neck melody for this song. And uh, I know it seems like we might be getting off track, but I'll show you how this all ties in to the lick-based playing and the improvising really soon. But just keep in mind that everything you're playing here has the potential of becoming one of our Mad Lib licks that we can insert into a new arrangement or an improvisation. So uh, here here it is. I'll play this uh, next example of the up the neck melody for you here. And then once again, here it is uh, slowed down for those of you trying to learn this off of the tab. Now, even with just those two bits that we just learned, you're pretty much ready to kick off the song and then take a lead break. And both of these things will serve you really well for those situations. But what if we want to add a little something extra? How do we use this or how do we improvise using this song? Uh, Well, I, I mentioned that everything you learn becomes a potential lick. So let's think about some licks that we might know. I happened to mention one already, that lick from Cripple Creek. So that's the next thing I have tabbed for you, is just that real simple G lick from Cripple Creek. Here it is. And that's all there is to it. Here it is again, uh, just like before, slowed down. So there we go. Let's put a pin in that one. We have one G lick to work from. Now let's move on to some other potential licks that we can call upon to improvise with. The A lot of you who have been regular listeners remember the whole episode on playing licks in the style of Jim Mills. So 
might as well call on that since we've already learned those, right? So here would be the Jim Mills G lick, and we can use this as another G lick. And then slowed down. So there's another G-Lick that if you have been a studious listener of the podcast, then you already know that. And of course, you also already know that we can transfer that lick into other keys such as C. And here it is, just like it's on the uh, tab sheet here, the C uh, Jim Mills lick. And slowed down. So great, we have a couple G licks, we have a C lick, let's think of some other ones to do. Uh, I'm going to teach you another simple C lick right now. It's one of my favorite ones, I've been using it for many years, I use it all the time, so I get a lot of mileage out of this one. I don't really remember where I got it or who showed it to me, or maybe I just made it up, but no, I probably stole it from somewhere, but uh, here I am paying it forward uh, to you here. It's one of my favorites. So yeah, the next one just called C-Lick on the tablature sheet. And here it is again, played slow. So yeah, that's a real cool one. So store that one away. So all right, we're working on two G licks and two C licks, and we're collecting these just from anywhere we can, from teachers who teach us them, from other songs that we figure out. It's just going into that uh, that bank, the collection that we have of, of different licks. Now, so we've got a few G, a few C. Uh, as you can see, the third chord that is in play here for the song that we're learning is the D licks. So here's a couple variations on a really standard Earl Scruggs D lick. If you don't know this one already, you need to know it. You probably hear it almost every bluegrass performance played by the banjo player, but this is worth knowing. Uh, so this is the basic D lick on the tablature sheet. And as always, here it is again, played slow. Now here's something that I enjoy doing, and this is almost a way to improvise and improvising within the improvisation. So even within these specific D licks, we can think of ways to vary them. So this next D-Lick is what I call D-Lick Variation 1. And as you can see, it's just a one-note difference, adding that second fret up on the D-string. But uh, listen to the difference in sound that it makes just from adding that little color tone. And slowed down. So we added one note that time. 
let's vary it even a little bit more. Um, this For this next one, or D-Lick Variation 2, we're still playing the same notes, but we're adding a, a slightly different roll pattern. We're adding a pull-off now on that added note from Variation 1, and listen to how that changes the sound of the lick. And Variation 2, Slow. Now, at this point, I am off on just a small tangent because this is something that I just think is so cool that we're adding little hammer-ons and pull-offs, and that is one of my favorite aspects of someone's playing, such as J.D. Crow or Jim Mills, is just hearing all those little, little gnarly little accent points that he puts in there. And so make sure you're playing those really crisp, not saying that I always do it perfectly, but um, it's definitely what I strive for. And we're going to add even more of that on the next variation, which is, uh, again, a very similar one to variation two. The only difference is that rather than on the last four notes of the main lick, it changes up the roll and listen again to how that changes the accenting and the note placement that's available on this one. So this is D-Lick Variation 3. And Variation 3 slowed down. So hopefully you can hear the differences between all those. And the reason I'm going into detail with this D-Lick is to show you that Not only can you improvise using licks themselves, but after you learn a lick, you can spice it up by just adding a note here or changing a slight finger pattern there or adding a hammer on there. And it really changes the character. And then each of those becomes a new lick in itself. So those are three versions of basically the same lick. And um, it's it's all good stuff and good to have available for your improvising pleasure. Okay, now is where the real magic happens and we get to put all of this together. So we have a song that we're working on, On My Way Back to the Old Home, and we have a bunch of licks. So now let's put our Mad Lib together. Let's create our own improvised solo. And of course I know that improvised means that you do this on the spot, but pre- pretend like what we are talking through right now happens just in the in the span of seconds as you play, because this is really what it's about. So we start with the framework of that very first On My Way Back kickoff, that down-the-neck break. And now we're going to substitute. We have the chord progression up above, going from... G chords to C chords and D chords in there. And we're going to pick and choose between the up the neck break. Remember I said all of those can be thought of as new licks to play. And then all those other G licks and C licks and D licks that we learned. So what we come up with in true Mad Lib fashion is a brand new way to play that song improvised from the licks that we know. So let's look at that last arrangement, the last page of tablature called 
uh, I think it just says substitute licks. And what this means is this is that kickoff to on my way back from the old home. But look what we've done. We kick it off. That G chord is the same as it always is. But look what happens when the chord goes to C. We put in that C lick rather than what was originally there. Then the chord goes back to G. Ooh, we added the G lick that we know from Cripple Creek. Then it goes to D, and we're using one of our basic D licks. Next time through the progression starts on a G again, and we're putting in the Jim Mills lick. It goes to a C. We put in the C Jim Mills lick. And then we finish it off finally with the 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 home stretch where it goes G to D and then back to G. We put in that section from our up the neck break. So hopefully you all followed that, but it's it really is striking how much it is just like Mad Libs, where if you know you have a C chord, you pull out one of your nouns or your adjectives or your C licks and just plug it right in there. And more times than not, that will give you a good start. So let's hear how that composite uh, solo for this song sounds now that we've put in all those licks together. And here's the new arrangement with substitute licks played slowly. So that's pretty great. That's a perfectly legit bluegrass style solo. Now, all of those licks don't fit together perfectly, but remember, this this is not jam perfection. It's jam survival. And these are the basic tools that you're going to need to fake it till you make it. And that is largely done through learning a few licks, learning how they're going to connect, learning which ones are appropriate for which songs. And and we just put together a pretty good bluegrass solo just with knowing a few licks and the basic melody of the song. Now, here's where you might say, but Keith, we sometimes we need to play songs that we don't even know. We're, we're not going to have that basis of that kickoff break that you taught us or the up-the-neck break that you taught us. And that's fair enough you might not have the benefit of having those things thought out. But look at it this way. If you can play this on my way back to the old home... Do you think you might be able to apply some of that to this song, Come Back Little Darling? Who 
or maybe your love is like a flower? And you can, you can hear how those all sound similar enough that you could probably use that exact same solo that you just learned for all of those songs and a huge number of other bluegrass songs. And honestly, it doesn't really matter if the chords are exactly the same. That's, that's your job is to as quickly as possible learn the chord progression of each new song. And that's where the, the skills come in that I taught you in last episode of keeping your head up and l- knowing those guitar chords and, and really trying to latch on as quickly as possible to what the chord progression is of this new song. Because once you get a hang of that chord progression, that's unlocking all of your skills that you're gathering through every bit of more and more experience that you have and learning licks from new songs and getting better at putting them all together. I'm going to say this one more time, but it really is such a fundamental concept for this way of playing. Think about everything you learn. And remember, I told you last time, you don't really know a tune unless you know the chord progression. So when you're learning something, really start to associate what you're playing with the underlying chord that goes with it. And as soon as you realize that that a C chord is a C chord, and a C chord in one song is going to be pretty much the same as a C chord in another song. So that means that what you're playing over the C chord in one song, you can play over the C chord in the other song. Of course, there's tons of exceptions for situations that that might not be true, but that's really the way to approach this. I think we've all seen performers who, in the middle of a solo, they will play a little quote from like a a TV theme song or or a cartoon theme and everyone kind of laughs and that's kind of cool when people sneak those in. But why do you think that works? It's because they they know that those little melodies work for the chords that the band is playing and it's somewhat interchangeable. So anyway, I hope all of this helps you a lot figure out how to conquer these jam sessions and be successful at trying to play songs that you don't know It is a lot of hard work, but once you start to accumulate some skills, it's amazing at how far those can take you, and it just takes some practice and some bravery getting out there, and someday when we all get to go hang out with our friends again and have jam sessions, we'll be able to put these into good practice and be better musicians because of it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. That's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Hopefully this stupid, stupid coronavirus goes away so we can all get out there and jam and put these skills to very good use. Thank you once again to today's Patreon supporters, Jesse Madden and Johnny Packard. Once again, you can become a Patreon supporter by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. In case you missed it earlier, that Patreon page is also where you can download the accompanying tablature sheet that goes with this episode, and you'll get tablature of all those licks and the the kickoff to the song, and basically everything that I played will be tabbed out for you to work on that way. There were five sound clips in this episode. 
and uh, in the order in which you heard them, it was Head Over Heels, performed by the Bluegrass Album Band, Pain in My Heart, performed by Bill Keith, Sarah Jane, performed by Country Gazette, and then those three similar bluegrass standards, all performed by the Bluegrass Album Band. It was On My Way Back to the Old Home, Come Back, Little Darlin', and Your Love is Like a Flower. So hope you enjoyed those. Uh, once again, contact the show. Let me know if I forgot anything that you were dying to know about. You can do that at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And that's going to do it for me. I'll be back with another interview episode next time. In the meantime, everyone stay safe and healthy and keep picking. Keep picking.